God's word says to us in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you come and take your word and stir in us. Would you give us the joy of Elizabeth, the delight that the Lord has come, that we would see and savor your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, sociologists study the various ways a society or group interact, develop, and function. And in their studies, they look at the ways that people celebrate things. You know, in our culture, birthdays are a big thing. Have a big party. Celebrate the kid's birthday. But in other cultures, that's considered selfish, me-centered. And they don't have a big birthday celebration. One interesting celebration that has arisen during my lifetime is that of the baby gender reveal. With the near-precision accuracy of a sonogram, you can now know, for the most part, what the gender of the baby, the sex of the baby, is going to be before it's born. When we lived in Ohio, we knew that we were going to have our fourth, so we had Sarah go, had the sonogram tech write on a card, put it in an envelope. We went to one of our favorite restaurants, and then there with relatives, we all guessed what it would be, made a little drum roll, and then opened it up. And you can get much more fancy than that. If you go online, you can buy Pokemon balls that will explode with blue or pink. You can buy a Harry Potter sorting hat with the gender underneath. You can fill a piñata, a cake, a cupcake, cards, M&Ms, whatever, so that when they're opened, you know it's going to be a boy or a girl. However, what if the mother had a reveal 
before she was even pregnant? What if she was told before she'd even conceived with a child? What if it was even before she'd been with a man? What if the revelation told not just what the gender of the baby would be, but also its identity and purpose in life? That would only be something that God could do. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline first in verses 26 through 33. We're going to see the revelation. Then in verses 34 through 38, the explanation. And then lastly in 39 through 45, the confirmation. So beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1, the revelation. And you may remember, or you can look and see the headings, Last week we looked at the announcement and then the conception of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now Luke turns to tell of the announcement of another child, Jesus of Nazareth. And the story has many comparisons and contrasts. And they're all done because they're trying to paint a picture that John is going to be great before the Lord, but Jesus is greater. You know, last week at the end of our verses we saw that Elizabeth remained hidden for five months. And now, it says, in the sixth month, referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. Now notice, before it was to the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's in an obscure town in Galilee. It would like be talking about Electra, Texas, or even worse, Alney. Who's ever heard of these places? Do they, what? You know, maybe some people in Texas have heard of them. But definitely, if you are from any other part of the country, like, eh, maybe that's real, I don't know. Nazareth? What is this place? Yeah, we may have heard of that up, up north in the Galilee. We, I don't know. Some backwards place. What? That's where the revelation comes. And not to a grand palace, not at a royal event. It comes to an out-of-way private home to a virgin named Mary. Tells us she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal was a firm agreement and commitment. It was not yet marriage, but it was much stronger than what we think of an engagement. You know, to end a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. And the common age that a girl would be betrothed was ages 13 to 15. So most likely, Mary is a young teenager. So the story is showing us that this baby is coming to humble means. It's not going to be adorned originally with wealth and title. But one significant title is given because the one to whom she's betrothed is Joseph, who's a descendant of King David. You know, for them, the father, even if he was adoptive father, was the one who passed down the family line. And then Gabriel says something interesting in verse 28. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. you know, God chose to show favor with her. And he lets her know that though she has this difficult task, he's going to be with her through it all. Now this verse has caused some confusion because as it was translated from Greek into Latin, it was translated gratia plena, which means full of grace. And you may have heard, Hail Mary, full of grace. Except the idea is not that she is full of grace, but that grace is being given to her. It's not something she has, it's something she receives. You know, Mary is a sinner like all of us and must receive grace. And God alone is full of that grace. Well, Mary, just like we would have been, is kind of troubled. What, what's going on? What does this saying mean? 
And then Gabriel again speaks to her and tells her not to fear because God has shown grace upon her and reiterates that. And he tells her, verse 31, she's going to conceive and bear a son. She shall call his name Jesus. And he's going to be a great son. He'll be the son of the Most High. Now, you may remember back or notice back in verse 15 that John the Baptist, it says, will be great before the Lord. Here, it just declares that Jesus is great. There's a qualitative improvement. Jesus will be said here that he's the son of the Most High. If you flip over to chapter 1, verse 76, it's talking about John the Baptist. And it says, a new child would call the prophet of the Most High. Over and over, these parallel accounts, Luke is showing, yes, John is great. He's a wonderful forerunner. But Jesus is superior. Jesus is the greatest. And Jesus will later say in Luke 65, 6.35, that we can be called sons of the Most High ourselves. And thus, though this term implies, and we'll later clearly see that it shows that Jesus is divine, it does not mean necessarily that the person is divine. You know, here when it says Jesus is the Son of the Most High, it could be referring to a special favored status that anyone could have. It goes on in verse 32 and declares that he is going to be of his father, David. That he will have his throne. You know, we read this promise earlier from 2 Samuel 7. The promise was partially fulfilled in Solomon, but Solomon died. And one who is to reign forever was going to come of a kingdom that will never end. You may know that when Hitler began, he pronounced that there would be a thousand year Reich. Well, he only lasted 12 years. There have been other dynasties that have come and some still exist that have lasted for thousands of years. But only one dynasty and throne will rule forever and ever. And that is of the one who is being prophesied and told of here. The one from King David. And thus, this is not just telling the gender. It's telling of the royal figure who will come and reign. And we looked at these promises more in depth when we finished our study in Haggai. Of how these Davidic promises flow through the Old Testament and find their fulfillment here. It just as every Christian child knows of Christmas and knows of the story. So every Jewish child knew of these promises to David. And how they would be fulfilled. You know, Israel here is laying in captivity to Rome. And they're wanting this Davidic king to return. And as we go through Luke over and over. He's going to show that the king has come. Now as we look at this. We need to be careful that we don't import what we know from the rest of the story. And from what Mary later confesses to what she understands right now. You are so familiar with the story that there's no longer much shock to what happens. But does Mary understand now that her son is the son of God? You know, I think most likely she doesn't. Well, why is that? Well, a few reasons. First, in just a couple chapters, chapter 2, one chapter actually, they're going to take Jesus to be circumcised. And there a man, Simeon's going to prophesy over him. And then he's going to say that this is the one who brings salvation. The one who brings light to Israel and glory to the nations. But then in Luke 2.33 it says, And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Or then, you're probably familiar, at age 12, they all go, to Naz go from Nazareth to Jerusalem. 
And then in some confusion, the family goes back, but Jesus stays at the temple. And when they come to get him, figure out what's happened, they say, why'd you do this? And he said, I had to stay in my father's house. But again, it says they did not understand. Mary even ponders these things to her heart. Or third, once Jesus begins his ministry and goes out, it says in Mark 3.20, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, as Mary later reflects on all these things that Gabriel says, she'll go, ah, I see what he meant. But for now, she thinks, I have a great son, a son who's going to be in the Davidic line. But it does not appear that she yet realizes that this is also the Son of God. You may have heard or sung the song, Mary, Did You Know? And then it goes, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule all nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. And if we could go back in time and ask Mary at this point, she'd probably say, no, I don't know all that. Later she will. She'll reflect, but at this point, she doesn't. And you may be like Mary today. You've heard all these things about Jesus and you think, oh, he's a great teacher. He's a good philosopher. He has some morals that if our world would implement them, we would be better today. But God's son, one to whom we should give our life, I don't know that I agree with that. We'll hear Luke's writing to show us not only is Jesus great, he is the greatest thing that has ever come. And he's wanting us to see, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, that day in and day out, there is nothing greater. And I think sadly for myself and probably most of us, day in and day out, we can say with our lips, yeah, Jesus is great. But our actions show that really what's greater is a nice meal, or my next vacation, or that video game, or my family and friends, or my hobby, or my home renovations, or my garden, or getting the next fact on my ancestry, or binging on my favorite shows, whatever our actions show that our heart says, there's something actually greater. And when Jesus stays great only in our heads, and not in our hearts, and then in our feet, we end up nibbling on the things of the world and never being satisfied. You know, God has put eternity on our hearts. And only as we feast on God's Son will we be fully satisfied. So do you hunger and thirst for Him? Do you see how great He is? Do you long to have a more passionate love for Jesus? Do you realize that He's not just a good man? He's the greatest being, for He's God and man who's come to earth. May God help us to let the facts that so many of us know we could articulate with our head to work down into our hearts. But there's a problem with this story that needs to be explained. And we look at that verse next in verses 34 through 38, the explanation. Because though this is joyful, Mary also knows that she's still a virgin. Thus, how's this going to happen? Now notice what's exceptional, exceptional about this story is not a virgin birth, 
but a virgin conception. You know, Jesus was born in the normal way any child was, but he was conceived in a way that no other being ever has. And, and notice what this implies. It implies that Mary was not gullible. She wasn't unaware of biology. Their culture was not dumb as though they thought, oh, these kind of things just happened. No, they realized that this is not normal. And Joseph, what does he need? He needs an angel to even go to him and explain what happens. And so the angel informs her in verse 35 that the Holy Spirit will cause her to conceive. Now, we're not giving any details of what that means, but clearly there's no pagan notion here of the Holy Spirit being intimate with Mary. You know, Mary's not a perpetual virgin because we'll read in the other parts of the gospel. She, Jesus had brothers and sisters, but she was still a virgin after she conceived. You know, if God can speak a universe into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he can cause a birth to occur in a womb outside of the normal processes. And really, the supernatural birth is again being contrasted and compared with John. Well, yes, John, you're going to have a supernatural birth from parents who are beyond childbearing age. But Jesus is going to be born in a way that no other being has ever been born before. And due to this happening, the one born to her, the Gabriel tells her, will be called Holy, the Son of God. He's holy. He's set apart for a distinct purpose. And he's the Son of God. Now, again, we hear that. We know the rest of the story. Well, that's God's eternal son. Except if you look at the genealogy in Luke 3.38, it works all the way back and it says, son of Adam, and Adam is the son of God. So, later reflection, we'll clearly see that, oh yes, he means divine, eternal being. But for Mary, she's hearing, oh yeah, he's a child of Abraham. But, Mary still is wondering, is this possible? And thus Gabriel says in verse 36 that nothing is impossible. Even her relative Elizabeth, you know, you know Elizabeth, that barren one, she's six months along. Go check, go see. You know, here Mary didn't request a sign, but the angel Gabriel gave her one. He gave her confirmation through Elizabeth. And thus verse 37 says, for nothing is impossible with God. And when God told Abraham and Sarah that they would conceive in their old age, Sarah laughed. What? That couldn't happen. And then God said to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? You, What in your life have you unconsciously decided is too hard for God? Is it a child that seems like they'll never change? Is it a sin or a habit in your life that you think can never be defeated? You know, God loves to work in ways that are beyond what we ask or think. Well, Mary responds in a remarkable way in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And she doesn't declare, Well, that's not right. It's my life. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. You can't do that. She declares that, look, you're the master. I'm the servant. Do with me as you wish. You know, here, this is a very humble acceptance that's going to have major cost. It's going to cause misunderstanding with Joseph. And he's going to 
pursue for a time a divorce. It's going to cause shame for her in her community. And it's going to cause her child to be mocked. And just think what's going to happen. A few months from now, she will still not be married. And she'll begin to have the baby bump. And people are going to start saying things. And she's going to go, oh no, nothing happened. I was in my house. And this angel appeared to me. And the Holy Spirit came. And now I'm pregnant. And everyone's going to go, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. And then you're, Joseph, so why are you still going to marry her? You know, she's saying an angel caused... No one's going to believe her, and it's going to cause shame and rebuke. But Mary humbly receives from the Lord what he does in her life. And you know, Mary's response here is a model for us. You may have sung the song, Here I Am, Lord... You know, in the song, a verse will sing of something God calls us to do. And then the chorus is, Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. And yeah, I think often, if we sung what was really in our heart, we'd say, There he is, Lord. Is it him, Lord? I've heard you calling him in the night. I will tell him, Lord, if you ask me. You know, I'm really much too comfortable with my life. You know, Mary hears the revelation from God and is willing to give up reputation. She's willing to give up respectability because she wants to serve God. You know, the cost is going to be immense and the burdens are going to be great. But she knows the reward will be eternal. You know, last week, you may remember, I mentioned the tightrope walker, Blondin, who walked back and forth on the tightrope over Niagara Falls. And as we said then last week, he pushed a wheelbarrow across and back with the concrete in it. And then when he asked the crowd, could I do it with a person in it? They all cheered. They went wild. Yeah, you could do it. Woo Until he pointed to one man and said, okay, climb in. And the applause stopped. Oh, well, yeah, I know you could do it, but don't ask me. Ask, ask them. And God, when he calls us to trust him, he says like Blondin, don't just agree, don't just cheer, oh, that's what you've done. Get in the wheelbarrow. Trust your life in my hands. Don't just agree in your head. Let it work down to your heart. Take it even if it's costly, even if the path is a falls on either side and a tightrope down the middle, because you can trust me. You know, the problem is for most of us, for myself, we want God more to bless our plans to serve us than we want to open up our lives to Him and say, we will do and follow your plans for us. We need to say, like Mary, behold, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. According to your word, Lord, even if it means a marriage, that's not what I dreamed. Parents, that I wish were more lenient. A career that was more glamorous. A body, health that is different than I desire. And yet we open our hands and should say, Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. For some of us, though, the issue is much more profound because we're wondering, can we put our faith in something that says a virgin can conceive? You know, several years ago, Nicholas Kristof wrote 
The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. He then goes on to say that his grandfather was a devout and active Presbyterian elder, but he nonetheless believed firmly in scientific truths and regarded the virgin birth as a pious legend. You know, and this really ties into what we said a couple weeks ago when we began the Gospel of Luke, and that is when some people look at the Gospels, they say, this is not a record of what happened, uh, history of, of, sorry, the Gospels of faith, the history of Jesus, Rather, what this is, this is the faith of people, what they believed about Jesus. And say, this is a key story. They say, look, this isn't what actually happened with Jesus. Later in time, people said he was the Son of God, so they took this story, morphed it from other stories, and they inserted it. This is only revealing the faith of people in Jesus. And without going into all that again, I pointed out then that what we need to remember is that often it's the prior faith or assumptions of those people that supernatural events can occur that causes how they view the facts. You know, they make the argument sound much more sophisticated than this, but it basically goes like this. Premise one, we know supernatural events do not happen. Premise two, the Bible records that Jesus was born of a virgin. Conclusion, thus it didn't happen. We know, but really their faith is determining for them what are the facts rather than them letting the facts determine their faith. And we could say lots of things about the historicity and reality of this account, but we'll just say three. First, though it's often claimed this was added to Christian teaching, there's no evidence for that. You can't find manuscripts of the Gospels without this, and then, okay, a couple centuries later, we find some manuscripts that have it, so it looks like it was added in. All the manuscript evidence has it from the earliest of time. So, there's just no evidence that this grew as a legend over time. But rather the evidence is that this is what was taught and believed and happened from the beginning. Second, it's commonly questioned, well, if this is true, then why don't Mark, why don't John, why doesn't Paul, why didn't the rest of the New Testament ever mention it? However, this is an argument from silence. You know, Paul never mentions the golden rule. Jesus never said child abuse is wrong. But Paul was not against the golden rule and Jesus wasn't pro-child abuse. The lack of saying something doesn't mean it's not true. Now this may not be the most essential element of our faith. You know, as you're witnessing to someone, you don't have to first get them to believe in the virgin birth. But just because it's not the most essential doesn't mean it's untrue. Well, third, if you reject that this happened, so if you're skeptical and you go, okay, I don't believe this is in here, then you have to explain, well, how did it get in here? And the common explanation is that, well, really what they did is they took Greek myths or pagan stories that were like this. The gods often were with women. That's exactly what happened. And so we know this isn't true. If you go to college, sometimes they have these things, the history of religion. And what they do is they compare different religions and see how they're similar in contrast. And then they'll say, look, they're really not that different. Or here, they'll say, okay, look, the Bible has stories of creation or a flood or birth of a deity. You can go to other cultures of that time. There's similar stories. The Bible's just kind of weaving them into their story. But everyone else had these same myths. And while we should admit that's true, you can go and find these ancient stories of creation. You can find ancient stories of floods, of births of a deity. 
What is often not noted is the differences. Yes, there's some similarities, but there's also some striking differences. Let me give you a brief analogy that hopefully will help. Imagine I told you of two meals. They both involve vegetables, cheese, dressing, bread products, and meat. You might, those are very similar. However, both a cheeseburger and a chicken Caesar salad have vegetables, cheese, dressing, bread products, and meat. You know, their shared terms, their shared ingredients do not at all mean they're similar. Or at least, I'll let you convey to the man who ordered a cheeseburger that his chicken Caesar salad is really just about the same thing. I mean, come on. Well, no. Just because they have similar things doesn't mean they're similar. The fact that there's other accounts of creation, a flood, birth of a deity, doesn't mean they're exactly the same. And in this case, the account of the birth of a deity is radically different than the other stories. You know, in the pagan stories, it's always a god being intimate with a human woman. Here, there's no intimacy. It's a completely different story. Though it has similar themes, they are completely different. And thus, we don't see this pagan idea coming in. And along with this, the Jewish people were opposed to pagan ideas. So if you don't believe it, you have to figure out, well, how did it get in here? And there's really no good explanation. Really, the most rational explanation is that this was included from the beginning because this is what happened. And the reason Mary was mocked and ridiculed is because that's what happened. Again, are you letting your faith drive what are the facts or are you letting the facts drive what is your faith? But as with all the Bible, the call is not to blind faith to leap in the dark. Thus, Mary can check the confirmation Verses 39 through 45, the last point, verses 39 to 45, the confirmation. So the story then quickly moves from the angelic visitor to Mary going to visit her relative Elizabeth. Now their towns were probably somewhere between 80 to 100 miles apart, and though it probably took her three to four days to get down there. When she arrives at the house, she greets Elizabeth, and as she does, John leaps in her womb, and the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth. Now before we go into this, I want to say some things to clear up some misunderstandings of what this means. You know, Elizabeth did not go trance-like state, have some person talking through her while she had unfocused eyes and a raspy voice. You know, Hollywood's depictions of a spirit overpowering someone, or really Hollywood's depictions of most things, will not lead you to a proper understanding. Elizabeth is fully aware of what she's saying. She is saying it as the Holy Spirit empowers her. As well, we need to remember some cultural context things about this. You, if you remember from last time, Elizabeth has hidden herself away for five months. And Mary, even a month later, had to be told by the angel Gabriel that Elizabeth was with child. You know, they don't have Pony Express back then. They're not passing letters frequently like we do. They don't text. They don't Skype. They don't call. So Elizabeth and Mary don't really know anything about what's been going on. Mary knows that maybe Elizabeth's with child. I'm going to go check. And Elizabeth, what does she know about Mary? Nothing. The only thing 
Who knows about Mary is whatever Mary has told herself. But note that as soon as she hears Mary's greeting, what does she say? She declares not only that Mary's with child, but she reveals his identity and purpose. You go back to the beginning. This is the greatest baby reveal of all time. You know, here she, she's saying all these things about this child. And yet Mary is showing no signs of pregnancy even yet. Mary is not even married yet. And Elizabeth only knows this through the inspiration of the Spirit. But let's look at what she says. Verse 42, with a great voice, she proclaims that Mary was a blessed woman. There's kind of a comparative nature here. She is more blessed or the most blessed among women. You know, Mary getting to bear this child is showing God's grace and favor upon her. And Elizabeth rejoiced at what God did in, in and through her because she realized that God is doing something greater than Mary, in Mary. Yeah, it's great that she, an elderly woman, is having a child, but this is even a greater thing happening. You know, even through the proclamation of Elizabeth, Jesus' superiority over John is being shown. You know, think about this. If you have a young girl of childbearing age, an older woman, who should be blessed? Well, you would think the older woman, oh, that's incredible. Well, this happens all the time. But no, Mary never praises and blesses Elizabeth. Rather, she praises what God is doing in the life of Mary. Along with this, Elizabeth says the child in Mary's womb is also blessed. And she shows her humility. She says, why would the Lord allow me even to be in the presence of the womb of this one who's coming? And she declares him the son of God, her Lord. And she's showing her trust, her humility, her recognition of what this one is who's coming. And then Elizabeth declares that John leapt with joy. You know, the ministry of John the Baptist began from the womb. He was the forerunner declaring of Jesus even while he was in the womb. Joy at this child. And so we sing even today, as we sang earlier, joy to the world, because the Lord has come. And she wraps up by praising Mary for believing, as opposed to her husband, who's still mute and can't talk. Way to go, Mary. You believed when the angel told you. And then she exalts and so, upon seeing the pregnant room, Elizabeth reveals, she confirms the message that the angel Gabriel gave. And that's what we've seen, we've heard, the greatest baby reveal of all time. You know, this was before indoor plumbing. This was before electricity. This was before sonograms. And God revealed through an angel and through a relative, Elizabeth, of the greatest baby to ever come. And this revelation not only accurately told the gender of the baby, though it did that, it also accurately declared his identity and his purpose. And for this baby is the long-promised son of David who will come and reign and rule forever. But not only is he the son of a mortal human king, he's also the son of the immortal divine king. And you see, the baby had to be like us. Because as Matthew tells us, Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. And the baby had to be human. 
So it could represent us. But it had to be divine. So it could present us before God. You know, maybe one human could represent a couple others. Maybe a few. But could one human represent an entire civilization? Entire countless millions upon billions who trust in Him? No. Only a divine being could do that. And so you see, all the Old Testament promises needed someone greater than a mere man. For a human king would always die. Not only that, his kingdom could never conquer their greatest enemy, sin and death. And yet the real king is being proclaimed here. Who isn't going to come in a normal way? Because no mere human could fix our greatest problem. You know, we humans, we've done some great things. We've invented electricity. We got windows. We got air conditioning. We could talk to people around the globe. But we still have not and never could by ourselves remove sin and death. And so God sent His only Son born of a woman to come and live and die in our place. To be the perfect man. To be our representative. And so would you trust in Him? He's better than any tightrope walker. He's the eternal Son of God who came to have hands so they might be pierced for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that this isn't just a wonderful story, makes us feel good, gives us some good songs and celebrations, or this is what happened in real space and time, and we can trust in your Son who humbled himself to take on flesh, to take our death that we might have life. Lord, may that stir joy in us. May it stir a life that realizes we are your servants to do as you have us to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.